Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Flamingo Sundays podcast. Uh, today I'm joined by uh, a man by the name of Matt Allen, who uh, has a very interesting background and a very, very interesting business now. Um, you know, was a part of one of the, I think, one of the world's biggest businesses in, in Amazon and now um, has his own take on, on venture capital, which I think is super, super interesting. And, um, mate, without a further ado, I'll let you explain a little bit more about who you are and where you come from. Matt Allen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so uh, Matt, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Tractor Ventures. Um, Tractor Ventures is a revenue-based financing company to help tech-enabled founders scale their businesses without uh, diluting, uh, without having to sell their equity to other investors. Um, not that we think that's a bad idea. It's just that some people um, uh, may not want to do that now or, or may want to delay that into the future. But uh, a little bit of background. So um, self-taught software developer started in the mid-90s. I'm old. Um, did my first startup <laughs> in 2000. Um, it was a piece of web-based software that insurance companies use, which was fairly unique back in the day. Um, managed to sell that in 2005. Had a bit of a mental breakdown. Moved to the country. Um, started working on a wireless network because I needed some internet for the farm that I moved to. I uh, did that for a little while, ran a golf website, um, decided that I didn't want to do coding anymore, De- became a technical recruiter and built out some software engineering teams of scale-up companies. I uh, did that for four and a half years, then joined Ada- Amazon AWS in the startup and VC team, spent two and a half years there, uh, managed to get a little few exits out of the few investments that I've made along the way, um, sat on the couch for six months and then started Tractor Ventures midway through 2020. Is that the couch you sat on behind you? It is the couch I sat on. I sat there for a long time, <laughs> wondering what to do next. Pondering and then, a lot. Uh, Pondering. And then, uh, yeah, started uh, officially launched Tractor in December 2020, um, which uh, was super exciting. To It's the first time I've actually ever been the CEO. Um, I've always been the CTO or a partner um, of someone else's thing. So started our own thing um, and it's been going really well. We've managed to deploy most of the money we raised and raised a whole bunch more now um, for some really interesting backers. And we're really excited to, you know, create a place or create a company that helps founders, you know, retain more of their company for longer as they, as they scale up. Mate, lots to take from that, lots to dig into. But I think the first thing which will give context to people who don't really understand how venture capital works, maybe talk about that. Like, So you guys are a little bit different. Um, venture yeah. capital, generally when they give funding to a company, take a, a percentage of that company for their efforts and for their cash. Um, yep. how, how, did, how did you guys sort of see that as not necessarily being the fit for every business out of there and, and where did the idea of you know, Tractor actually form from? Sure. So, um, you know, Tractor is, is named Tractor Ventures because uh, we think the opposite of a tractor is a rocket. So, um, and rockets are a couple of things. They're, um, you know, they're super exciting, uh, but they're expensive and they're prone to blowing up, um, which <laughs> is not a bad analogy for um, venture capital. So, um, you know, the venture capital business model works on what's called portfolio theory, which means that they will make a bunch of bets um, knowing that the likelihood of them all succeeding is really low. But when one does succeed, it's going to exceed wildly. So they may make 10 bets where eight of them go to zero and the money they put in is worth nothing. Another one might return a couple of times their money and the final one might return 100 or more times their money. So they run, they, they invest makes of lots of bets 
And when they start to grow, they keep doubling down on them, putting more money in and sort of maintaining that ownership percentage of, you know, somewhere up to maybe 20% of that company until it gets to the end. And the end is either gets acquired by a bigger company or lists on a stock exchange. And even then, it's not really the end. It's just they're able to get their money back out and they're able to take that money and return it back to the people who gave them the money. And the interesting thing about that business model is that it only works if that one that wins is in a space that allows them to win wildly win, you know, like we're talking, you know, turning a dollar into a thousand dollars, you know, over, over time. Um, Something and, and similar time, to what Afterpay just did, right? Afterpay, Canva, you know, insert large, well-known tech brand. Here. <laughs> um, yeah. The interesting thing there is, is that, um, uh, so, so, you know, when a founder goes and talks to a VC, you know, they need to be, describing how this business is going to allow this venture capital guy's money or girl's money to go into their business and then, you know, become really, really big. Um, knowing that there's a lot of risks along the way and they may explode. And if they explode, it's usually a binary outcome. It's usually like it works or it doesn't. If it works really well, if it doesn't, we sort of all pack up and go home and try again later. And that's the way the business model works. Um, and, you know, to be very clear, um, I think it's a really great business model in the fact that I'm an investor in several VC funds, I believe they do really good work for a very small number of founders building a certain shape of company. Uh, and my time at Amazon, um, I met lots and lots of founders being on the startup and VC team. Um, and a lot of them are just not compatible with VC. They're building companies that do have the ability to get big, but maybe not big enough for venture. Um, and, you know, and they're building it and doing things their own way. So Tractor Ventures, as opposed to the rocket that's exciting, expensive, and sometimes blow up. Tractors are, you know, reliable, consistent, and, you know, are really meaningful for the, the people that use them. You tell a farmer you're going to take his tractor off him, he's probably going to get pissed um, because it creates efficiencies in his business and it's really important to him. So a lot of the businesses that we back with these tractors are, are really consistent growth. You know, they just sort of grow nice and consistently. You know, they've got customers who love them and they may be in a niche. You know, they may be in what's, what, what, is too small for a VC to back because there's not enough customers, you know, in the, in the, the world for them to get as big enough for them to create that thousand X return. Um, but, you know, these companies do, most of our companies are doing millions heading towards tens of millions in revenue. They're just not on that sort of growth trajectory that's required for venture. So, you know, we, our mission is to help, you know, founders retain more of their company for longer. So that's not to say that we don't think that they should be bringing in other external investors. It's just allowing them to get their company in the strongest possible position before they before they do that. And instead of you taking a share of that company, you'll, you'll fund it along the way um, and that funding is then based on their revenue, right? Correct. So the mechanism we use is called revenue-based investing, which is a com- combination of Revenue-based finance, which is effectively a loan that they pay back via a 5% revenue share until they pay it back in a, in a fixed multiple. They know exactly how much it's going to cost them. The variable here is time. So if they grow faster, it comes back to us faster. If they grow slower, it comes back to us slower. And that's the risk that we take. Um, and the, the other component to it is, is some advice that we, we give them across the first 12 months of that loan. And we have a team of 12 of us now, and all of us are actually ex-founders who have been through the entire process of starting, starting companies, raising money and exiting. Um, so we've been really close to, you know, startups, uh, having had our own or, or been early employees of them. 
Um, and we think that's really important. The interesting part about not having, not being attached to the VC sort of scene and startup scene because you're a bootstrap company or an early stage company that isn't going down that path is the advice you get kind of lives in one of two camps and it's either VC advice that you can read about on TechCrunch and everything all day long. But that advice is not compatible unless you've got a bank account full of venture capital money and probably a VC on your board going, grow faster, grow faster, spend all that money, grow faster. And at the other end of the spectrum, uh, small business advice doesn't work for these businesses either. You know, they're scalable companies that can actually, you know, create a lot of revenue per, per employee. It's not a hairdresser or a fish and chip shop. So we kind of sit in the middle there and, you know, we think about the companies that we love to help and they're, they're too spicy for a bank, but they're not spicy enough for venture. And they're, they're, there's quite a lot, there's quite a broad stroke in there. Mild, mild, we call that. Well, you know, it's kind of like, you know, VCs, yeah, v, VCs like four chilies and the bank is like zero chilies and we're like two chilies. <laughs> two chilies in the middle. Yeah. Okay. Um, Mate, super, super interesting. And I'm sure working in this space as well, you probably work with a lot of businesses you're probably not used to working within the scene at, say, you know, your Amazon um, and the BC. Like, you know, they're working with businesses that, you know, you you are now working with, um, you probably haven't worked with before. Is that the case? Yeah, I mean, there's a our, our portfolio is super diverse. Um, and the reason, that's also another reason we wanted to build this company. And that is, um, you know, the, the people that end up, building VC type backable companies quite often sort of is a small shallow group of people. So we wanted to help more founders that are shaped differently. Um, you know, so we have a lot of, uh, we actually have a weirdly high proportion of husband and wife teams in our, um, or, you know, in our um, portfolio. Also in Tractor, we have, um, you know, April and I, April's my co-founder, she's also my wife. Uh, our Kiwis are partners. Um, so we have a bunch of people that maybe not, may not look like standard venture-backed companies. Um, our first company we invested in in Adelaide is a husband and wife team. Our second one from Brisbane happens to be other. It's, it's not a thing that we look for. It just happens to be that these people are building, you know, businesses that have millions of dollars running through them um, who are choosing not to sort of put their company and therefore their lives, you know, their entire lives because they're, they're husband and wife teams, you know, into that state where growth at all, growth is, is the only thing they care about. Um, which is it seems to be a common theme of the founders we, we work with. Did you uh, did you start in Adelaide because that's where Canberra was founded? You thought, well, if they can breed one Canberra, I reckon there's, enough. there's a oh, few others Canberra in the started, water over there. Canberra started in Perth, so you're off Perth? by one. Oh, there we go. Close. Shit. Um, <laughs> no, Adelaide because um, yeah, some founders that I'd, I'd had a relationship with and met at my time uh, at Amazon who uh, were surrounded by venture-backed founders and just sort of always went, well, that's not necessarily for us. And I've, I said to them, uh, Noel and Ben, you know, if you ever needed any capital, I'd love to help. And that conversation, you know, went for a year and then we started Tractor and then they were the first in line to, to, to take some of our um, capital and, and our help and our advice. And we, we think we've been meaningful for them. We've helped them really sort of unlock the next level of growth for their business and the people surrounding them. So we're really excited by that. Amazing. Mate, Going back to like your Amazon days, you were there for, you know, so sort of two, between two to three years. Um, it's a huge company, obviously, you know, trillions of dollars. What, what, what were the learnings that you got from there in, the, in, in you know, the relatively short period um, from working in the other firms compared to Amazon? 
Yeah, it was um, it was an interesting one. Uh, up until that point, I'd basically been self-employed my entire career, so I needed to prove to myself that I was employable. And uh, turns out I was for a while. Um, and it was a pretty small team. So the VC team at Amazon at AWS when I joined was about eighty people globally, and there was two or three of us in Australia. So it was nice to so, and we were a, sort of a couple removed from Seattle. We answered up to APAC, and then APAC answered up to Seattle. So um, we just got to do whatever we needed to down here. Um, so the thing that I learned was that, um, you know, I really actually do like having impact and it was very difficult for me to feel like I had an impact on Amazon. You know, I think I could find the next 10 Atlassians and it wouldn't move the needle on anything at Amazon, whether it be revenue, whether it be, you know, system use, utilization or anything. Um, so I had to kind of judo flip my day and, and the, the reason I was able to get out of bed is because I could use Amazon to be extremely impactful with the founders that we work with. Um, so, you know, having that really high leverage of going, I can do, I can get the beast to work for, for my founders. That's what I ended up doing, which is, you know, customer obsession was their thing. So that was what it was at. Um, but I did realize personally that I like, need to feel like I'm having an impact on the org that I'm part of as well. So the trade-off between, I know this is impactful for a founder, you know, putting them on stage in front of 20,000 people in the Sydney Entertainment Centre to talk about their their startup that, you know, they've never been in front of that many people is really impactful and allowing them to, you know, giving them a bunch of free credits and connecting them up with with potential huge customers is really impactful. But, um, you know, I just felt like I, I couldn't move the needle at Amazon. So I had to, I ended, had to end up uh, going and find something else to do. Jeff Bezos never personally called you one day and said, thanks for the big month last month, man. I, was, no, I bought myself I was in, another yacht. Uh, <laughs> I was also, it was interesting, um, you know, that team I was in um, was a business development team as opposed to a sales team. So we weren't actually trying to sell anything to anybody, which is perfect for me because I, as much as I, I don't really identify as a salesperson, but I'm more than happy to, <clears throat> you know, maintain those relationships over time and just try and help. Um, which is definitely sort of how I, how I identify and see myself anyway. So it worked in that respect. What, what were the biggest, I guess, takings or learnings you took from Amazon and then have implemented into to your own business and life? Like you know, very few people get to work in, in a company like that at that level. Um, so I'm sure there was, there was a lot you took from it. Yeah, a lot of it was um, you know, some of the weird things that they used to do. Not well, they're not weird there, but but they're very particular about things like writing, and they use a, like a press release um, process. So if you want to get anything done, you basically write a press release like it is is done. And there's a very particular way to do it, and and everything was about writing. There was no internal deck, so you couldn't put a pitch deck together. It was all about getting your words right and sort of being quite particular about stuff. So quite often, you know, you read this PR, it's called a PR FAQ, press release slash FAQ. So it'd be a press release and then internal FAQs and external FAQs. And that was something that, that everybody wrote for anything, any service that was part of AWS, any kind of thing that was done was always done that way. And it was, it was fascinating. And I, I find that, and I just, um, I just used one or at least used a narrative to um, raise tractors last round. So I didn't write a pitch deck. I wrote about two and a half thousand words of kind of like, here is our hypothesis. Here's what we know. Here's what the data says. Here's what we want to do. You know, are you interested? And turns out that that worked pretty well. So sort of got a, a more affinity with with um, words than I do sort of pitch, pitch decks now. Right. And uh, at the end of your your release that you did for, for Tractor, I'm sure it said click here to uh, to help us out with some cash. 
was literally a link to a Google form that said, stick your email address in and how much, how much money they want to invest in. I've got it. It's, it's our source of truth for our second round. <laughs> there we go. So you learned, you learned something, hey? a launch, launch tractor. Yeah. Um, and then, and then I guess, you know, from an employee perspective, you said you'd never been an employee of another company. Like, what did you take from from being an employee to, or coming from being a business owner or, or a founder to then being an employee, and now obviously back to being a founder and, and first time being a CEO? Yeah, different? I think. Um, look, it was it, we had a lot of rope inside Amazon, so it wasn't. I think it was a typical employee type engagement. Um, you know, we we were definitely left to our own to to do what was right for the customers. So it wasn't a typical command and control type thing. I didn't feel like I was being, you know, managed super heavily. Um, I think um, a lot of the the leadership style um, of sort of trust and, and expect results, but not, you know, micromanage, I've taken into Tractor. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a super senior team of people that are, take responsibility and just deliver stuff, which is how I've built it on purpose. Um, I think one of the observations that I, I did that I observed while I was at Amazon into the best teams, um, both internal and external at Amazon, was that some of them look pretty exec heavy. Like some of them look like they're very senior, but there's something about having a bunch of senior people that are fully engaged and just executing, which means that you don't have the the level of, I guess, management, having to manage folks to just get stuff done. And that's certainly how I've built Tractor. Um, everybody's like very senior and very responsible and it just means that I can trust them to get stuff done which is certainly how it was you know one of the leadership principles at Amazon um there's two that I liked one was um I write a lot so you'd hire people that are right a lot I'm not saying they're right all the time but they kind of got they make good decisions and the other one was a bias for action so it's like it's not about waiting around and asking for permission it's about like so you combine those two things together, the people who, you know, are right a lot and they're getting on with shit. You know, the times that I got the most frowning at Amazon was when I was like, oh, can I do this? And they're like, why are you even asking? You should have just done it. You should have done it a month ago. Like, don't have to, you don't need permission. You just go do it. Um, you know, if it's the right thing for the customer. Like Silicon Valley, right? Go fast and break shit. Yeah, I mean, it's breaking stuff was interesting. You know, there was there was rules I'd bump up against every now and then, and um, uh, it was it was they were frustrating. And I think you know, I think in the end, what was most frustrating was um, you know, goals that I didn't necessarily agree with. In the end, the reason I left was um, you know, the, the organisation become much much bigger, and set goals that I just thought were stupid. <laughs> so I left. Goals that you thought were stupid in, uh, in yeah, because they were too big, or they just weren't aligned with. with- there was, there was too many of them and they weren't aligned with what I thought they actually created value for the, um, for the customer. So, yeah. Now, here you are, huh? On, yep. the, on the tractor instead of the rocket ship. Yep. Although, so, um, the, the, amount of, the amount of work we're doing at tractor, it feels like it's a very, very fast tractor. <laughs> it's, got, it's got turbos, this tractor. Yeah. So, we're, like, with... with I guess tractor in mind. You obviously left Amazon. You said you probably spent six months on the couch just trying to work out what you were gonna do. Um, tractor was born. Was it born with an end goal in mind in terms of you know this is the, this is the gap we see in the marketplace. This is what we learnt from our time at Amazon and any past businesses and um, and positions. You know let, let, let's get this up and running because there's obviously a gap there and there's a need for this kind of 
service and product. Yeah, I mean, it was born out of um, out of being really close to venture capital. You know, I'd, I'd worked with the VCs. I invest in VCs. I've got a bunch of angel investments. I and I have about fifty now. Um, so like, it's it's a a space that I'd played deeply in. And I just realized that there were so many founders who were building really interesting businesses that that were not compatible. And they spent so much time pitching venture when their company's never going to get funded. Like it's just it's just not right. Um and, and it's not they're not bad companies. I mean, you know, VCs will say they invest in one out of a hundred companies. And we thought, well, there's not 99 bad companies out there. There's probably 80 or 90 that are unfundable for, for mm. one reason or another for anybody, no matter what their, their return profile looks like. But there's this cohort there who are building really interesting, solid businesses that just can't get capital into them um, in any way that, 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 that is not venture. So um, kind of that's, that was why it was born. Um, you know, as, we've, as time's trundled on um, over the last seven or eight months, We've realised that that there is a um there's a mission there to help founders sort of retain as much value in their company for as long as they can, um, which tries you know, which means that you know people that sell shares really early they're very expensive. Like the the when they sell a share, the reason someone's buying them is they they want that hundred or thousand x return, and if it works, they're going to get it. So there's a point where some founders who have got mm. their businesses up and running and have got millions of dollars running through it, you know, maybe selling those shares isn't the, the best move for the founders right now. You know, it, obviously the capital is required to help the company grow, but, you know, there's different ways to get it into the business now that has a different impact long-term. You know, you either have to pay for it now because it's a loan, but you retain the value or you pay for it later because you know you've handed the value across to someone else and you know it, it quite often it's an and not nor like it's not necessarily you do that and all that it's kind of blend them together and see how they go right it's something interesting you said you said there's 99 businesses or 100 businesses out there one of them gets funding 99 of them don't and 90 of those businesses hypothetically saying um aren't right for funding. What would you say, like just out of my own curiosity, would you say the biggest reasons are that a business is just not suitable for any type of VC? Most of the time it's just super early, right? Like most of the time it's in a modern, in in the modern, especially in technology, you know, there's not many excuses to not get started. Like, you know, it's cheap to get started on most things nowadays, whether it be e-commerce or software, you know, there's a lot of no-code tools. You don't have to be a dev you know, back in the day, if you didn't know how to stick a server in a rack and stick Linux on it, you couldn't get started, right? There was no way to get going. And the, the barriers to entry have come down to almost nil. So if you can come up with an idea and, and, and you believe that you understand the problem that your customer is going to have and you can't find a way to help start solving them really quickly, um, that's kind of where I imagine most investors want to see something, Um Australia in particular, I don't think there's many people that invest in you know, just ideas without some sort of validation of some description. So it's in your best interest to get out there and sort of have some customers. Not many. Don't need a lot of them. You just got to get some. Yeah, right. So it's got some sort of track record or some sort of proof that your product or service actually works. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. This 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 topic is it's it it was on the front of my mind because on uh, Sunday evening I watched The Inventor with Elizabeth Holmes. Do you, do you know that movie? Or do you know the documentary? Oh yeah, I, I know I know the Theranos story. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. And, and it was interesting because a lot of that was around, you know, she was very secretive, you know, didn't, didn't, there was a, there was a philosophy and, and an end goal in mind, but no one really knew the inside of it. Um, and a lot of people bought her as a person, right? Um, do you think that, you know, in, in your own business with, with, with Tractor and then in the VC stuff you've done in the past, is that a big driver for whether someone does or does not invest? Is, is the person at the helm, either at the uh, rocker ship or at the helm of the tractor? Yeah, look, it's all, it's ultimately, a, it's all people. Um, and there's a, there's a fine balance between, you know, someone who can tell a good story and someone who can build a great company. Um, and, and they don't always go hand in hand and they're not equally, you know, equally in equal portions a lot of the time. So, you know, there's nothing sadder for me when I see a, comp- a founder who's actually built something interesting, who just can't tell it, like who can't wrap it up and create the narrative arc where someone who, you know, probably doesn't know the customer's problem like they do can go, holy moly, like I'm really interested in that because you've managed to describe you know the impact your business is having on the on your customers. So there's a there's a balance between all the fluff and what we're going to do and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Versus look what we're doing. Um, you know it's hard to it's hard to argue against. Look, this is what we're doing. Let me show you what we're doing. Um, but at the especially the early stages, there is a little bit of storytelling and narrative versus execution. And even at Tractor, um, you know I'd written one that first loan out of my own money, um, you know, on the, on the terms that I thought were, were going to make sense. And that's kind of what we raised off the back of with, you know, one data point, it wasn't many. Uh, and now we have a hell of a lot more. So um, I do think that there's a combination of, of, of that narrative plus execution. So in short, be a very good storyteller if you want to get access to cash. But back it up with um, back it up with execution real quick. Love it. So, mate, where where do you see Tractor going? Like you obviously said, you know, feels like a tractor that's got turbo attached, and probably uh, where where do you see Tractor going to? Is it just going to be an Australia based company? Are you going to try and fund companies internationally? Um, so we're focused on Australia and New Zealand. But really what we want to be is the place where founders come, you know, to scale up their business. Now, when they're not, not, not necessarily when they're taking venture. So we're very founder, founder focused. Like it's, we, we believe that secure founders run a better business. So, you know, step one, secure some capital that allows you to, to, to run that business and grow that business the way you want to. Step two, you know, we do have a bunch of investors inside Tractor who, uh, happy to do what's called a secondary transaction, which means that the founders can sell down a little bit of their company, but they take the money rather than putting the money in the business to grow. So, you know, a, a founder that is able to go and buy a house, I think runs a better business in the long run. And, and as we know, people that are starting business quite often have every single dollar they've got wrapped up in this business because they've had to capitalize it themselves for a long time. So, you know, securing the founder being able to help them sort of buy their first home, I think is something that, that de-risks the founder's life. Ironically, not ironically, interestingly, then de-risking the investor's life because they've got a better view of running. They can make better decisions because they're able to go, well, you know, at least we've got half a mortgage or a mortgage over, you know, a house over here that we own so we can go off and run a better business. So I genuinely believe that, um, you know, as time goes on, founders who have the choice where they get their capital from, 
who have the choice as to you know the 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 speed with which they are forced to grow their business or not um, will become more and more and more of them. So we want to be the place that founders come to when they like, want to you know grow their business at, at their at their own pace and potentially buy a house as well. Well, I mean, that's what we'd like to be able to do. You know, we're working on, we've got a first couple sort of coming down the line yeah. in a little while, um, allowing the founders to both put some money in the business to grow it a bit faster, plus take a little bit out so that they can sort of take a breath out and hit save in their game of life and they can keep playing and see what happens next. Love it. Love it. Mate, you- you know, from all your experience, whether you were a founder of a company, you know, you've been through the startup and exit phase of many businesses. Um, you've worked in one of the, the world's largest companies and seen many different businesses from that inside of, of Amazon. And now, obviously, with Tractor, you're looking at businesses probably every single day. Um, what do you, I guess, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but a majority of these new, especially tech startups are probably younger people, right? They're seeing the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world and, and, you know, all these other people and, and go, well, why can't that be me? Like, what, what do you see as probably one of the biggest flaws or the biggest um, misconceptions or issues when it comes to people now wanting to start businesses and scale these things to, you know, ungodly levels? I think it's kind of what I touched on before, and that is, is um, like a lot of people, a lot of people want to, you have this idea to build a business with this, you know, huge big goal in mind, which is great. But in reality, um, without those customers, without those early customers, um, it really, it's, it's difficult to, to sell. It's difficult to get anyone involved, whether it be a co-founder or staff or investors or whatever. So um, I think it's really easy to go, I want to be Facebook. But, you know, you need to rewind and go, you know, the very first, the very first one feature that Facebook did that worked, like that's where you start. So it's very overwhelming to go, geez, so, you know, the thing I want to, my competition does all this stuff. So, you know, I actually think the only way to start anything, even if it's Canva, is to be super niche to start with. Um, one of our companies in our tractor portfolio is called Martialytics, and they run a, a, a SaaS platform for martial arts studios. And you think, oh, man, like surely that's not very big. Well, they've got hundreds of customers in countries around the world. Uh, you know, they generate thousands and thousands and thousands, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, you know, and there's two people, you know, and, and they've got this platform that does everything that someone who runs a karate studio in Brazil needs, um, you know, and they go up, technically they could play against Mind Body and these other massive conglomerates, but you can't do, you know, your judo belt grading inside Mind Body because, and they'll never do it because that's not what they do. So you think it's niche. But ultimately, um, mm. you know, you've got this more direct conversation with the customer. You can have more affinity with the customer. It's cheaper to talk to them because there's fewer of them, but they've got the, a very similar set of problems. So, you know, I, the challenge I see with young people trying to start things is that it's, you know, there's big, big ends, big things that they want to do, but you forget that it's one tiny thing to start with. And, you know, I'd rather see five customers who would be, absolutely sad if you shut your thing down than 50 that were like, eh, nah, you know, I, you know, it's okay. Just because, you know, those five, you can go and find five look exactly the same as that and slowly sort of build it out rather than trying to build this big thing, which is expensive. And if you're going to build stuff, whether it be software or whatever, like it's going to get changed, it's going to be expensive. Um, 
you know, and the thing I think most people realize is that like software is actually quite often a liability, not an asset. Like it's actually, you need to think about it as expensive, especially expensive to maintain and, and um, change. So the least you can do, you know, and get, but if you can get customers engaged and happy with less of it, you'll actually create a better business in the long run because that stuff sort of compounds and adds up and really starts to hurt after a while. And it's, you know, touching on that, you know, same with marketing, right? Like if you're a niche, um, you know, the purple cow essentially talks about, uh, you know, being not nothing to everyone, but just being something to a certain group of people. Um, yep. And it works a lot better in marketing as well, right? It's, um, and in this day and, and, age, and from that, right, from little things, big things grow. Yeah, and in this day and age of paid acquisition, you know, the broader you, the broader you have to advertise, the more expensive it is, right? If you have to go up against a Telstra or someone else who's buying really broad stuff, you know, if you can go down narrow, then it's going to cost you less, right? It's going to cost you less to acquire a customer. Hopefully, you retain them for longer, and your whole business, you know, those those costs of customer acquisition really sort of play into the the, the ability for you to scale your business and do it in a, in a profitable manner or at least, a, you know, a, a profitable unit economics anyway. Yeah, yeah. How about service-based businesses, right? Like if, obviously if you've got a SaaS product or you're, you're selling a piece of software, um, what about when, you, when you've got a service, right? And a lot of service-based businesses, I would say the bottleneck is the founder of that business, right? Because they're the one who starts off doing everything and then they start employing all these people. But again, you know, it's, it's all them at forefront. How do you see like a service-based business actually being able to scale and um, grow into something that isn't just revolved around? Yeah, I mean, service industries is really is really hard. It's very difficult to actually um, get them to scale well, especially if you know the founder is the salesperson and the execution person and the the delivery person and all those things. Um, I think the um the the risk of the risk of coming off the customer facing stuff too early when um you know by hiring sort of salespeople is probably uh, something we see in, in lots of businesses so like I'd rather see a founder you know bring in the team to do some of the behind the scenes work and the delivery work so that they can stay sort of customer focused and customer attached and I think that um over time you can certainly bring in some people to sort of take over that role, but it's likely the thing that, that's, that's going to be the, you know, the differentiator. Again, it's probably the affinity with the story and the narrative and the founder and, and that. So you probably outsource some of the execution. Um, you know, if you're a creative person, you're going to have to go find some other creative people, you know, and, 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 and find the way to brief them properly or do whatever it is it is. And I, I certainly uh, don't envy them. I don't like services businesses, although I guess Tractor is a service business to a degree, but we don't do, Certainly don't, don't do hourly rate and don't do fixed price stuff. It's all, you know, service for equity, which has got a long-term upside rather than a, rather than having to pay the bills directly. 100%, 100%. So I, I, I think, again, back to, to, to young people and starting businesses, like, you know, you've obviously been the, the founder of a few businesses and, and worked inside of another business at Amazon. Like if you, were, if you were young now coming out of university and your end goal was to have you know, a substantial business, whether that be in VC or whether that be the actual business that's looking for VC or, or tractor capital. Um, how, how would you go about that journey? 
because I think a lot of people get confused. There's so much information out there where it's like, oh, fuck uni and just get out there and start and do shit. And then there's some people that are yeah. like, oh, go and grind your teeth on, you know, being an employee. Like from, from your perspective, how have you seen the most successful yeah. I think it's a balance between, you know, initially it's it's going really wide and saying yes to lots of stuff. So, you know, I was a self-taught developer and sort of said yes to a bunch of customers when I was a, you know, consultant or whatever. Um, so saying yes to a bunch of stuff with a mind to quickly getting a grasp on what you like and what you're good at. So, um, and for me, what I like and what I'm good at um, aren't necessarily the same thing. And um, they don't always last for a hell of a long time. So, um, you know, software development is something I taught myself, web development back in the days, and it certainly allowed me to sort of learn it, learn it, land on a junior programmer in an agency, spent a couple of years there, started my own thing, self-taught. But it turns out that I'm a bloody awful software developer. Like I don't really have the attention span and the attention to detail that you need to build software for a long, long time. I mean, I did it. It worked. Um, and I, I wrote millions of lines of code that made people millions of dollars, but it's not really what I, I, I realized quickly that being at that level, sort of down in the weeds of software development was not, it turns out I was good at it ish, but I wasn't enjoying it. So like your, your skill level and your enjoyment levels can sort of cross over a little bit sometimes. So, you know, I remember saying to a guy I was, you know, I was con- contracting to once, like, I don't want to can I come and do sales or something with you? He's like, yeah, but I can't pay you the same. I have to pay you differently because, you know, sales and BD people get paid differently than, than software developers who get paid a lot per day. Um, you know, and I wasn't, I didn't have the, the life structure around to sort of handle that at that stage. And I needed, you know, needed my day rate. Um, but, you know, eventually I sort of decided that after being a software developer, try software recruiting. So, technical recruiting for software developers, which I turns out that I'm a chatty bloke and I like to I like to help people. So like I really like to help people and I sort of felt like I came up a level then. So I'm like, right, now I get to help people with their careers, um, which is great. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed the process of helping people with their career and I really got a lot of enjoyment out of it. I didn't like the business model attached to it. I was really like, you know, if I did my job well, I would talk to a CTO or a CEO of a company. I'd listen to what they wanted. I'd make one phone call of someone that I'd known for a long time and probably helped before, you know, connect the dots, it'd work, and then send them a $30,000 bill. You know, like that to me was just like, oh, I, I, I'm really not inclined to do short-term. I'm not, in, I'm not incentivizing the short-term. It's just not how I work. So, um, you know, when I went, you know, so after that I realized, cool, I want to help people, but I don't want to, I don't, really want a sales job where it's stuff I need to do every quarter or every month. Um, so, you know, it was about eliminating. So the, what I've realized over time is that initially you start really broad and you try a bunch of things, you say yes to a bunch of stuff, but you just, it's okay to go, I don't, I don't, that's not for me. You know, it's not, that's not for me after a day or a week. It's, that's not for me after, you know, six months. And if you were to coming out of uni and you're 22 or you left school and you're 18, it's like get in there and give it a red hot go. And then be really explicit about whether it's for you. Um, you And then it's probably not whatever job or role you're doing, it's probably not entirely all for you or entirely not for you. There's probably elements of them where you're like, actually, I really like that bit, but fuck, you can leave that alone. Um, So like if you 
if I was to, you know, give myself my earlier self some advice, it'd be like, it's okay to not have to try and improve your weaknesses all day long. Cause that's like, that's a grind, right? Like if you go, it turns out that these 20% of the stuff I do, I'm really good at and, and I, and I enjoy it. I'll go focus on that for a while. And what will happen is you'll probably start to enjoy it less because, you know, for me, the challenge drops down. Like it's, it's like, I'm good at that. I'm enjoying it. Now I'm doing it over and over again. Uh, you know, it's no longer exciting because I'm kind of feel like I'm done. Um, where some people love to just sort of do the same thing over and over again and become the top, top, top debt, you know, percentage of the people that do it. But yeah, so, you know, my advice is start wide and narrow down sooner rather than later. It took me 40 years to, before I was like, okay, maybe I should just double down on the shit I'm good at. <laughs> and, and, you know, ever since I did that, things started to get much, much better. So essentially the, the, the piece of advice from that is, is yeah, try something if you like it you know further in that direction if you don't like it trade it into something else and the, the more you try and the more you taste the more you work out what you like and dislike and i guess the very fortunate or lucky people who happen to try the first thing and it's the thing that they love um which i, th- I would say is the minority um great but you know most people have to go through many different jobs and careers to find out really what works and then and then double down on that yeah, it's kind of like the specialist versus generalist. I think early on in career, you, you know, specialising on anything, um, you know, you may have been trained that way. You may have done uni and got a degree, but you really haven't been exposed to the boundaries of where, you know, how wide or how narrow you need to be before you you feel sort of fulfilled and excited to go do stuff. And, you know, not everybody's excited to go to work. And I completely understand that. But if you have the choice to go, I've got 10 things that I need to do, you know, that I'm asked to do, and I enjoy three of them. You know, like if I was to go, well, how do I do more of that? And a lot of the time, uh, what I found over time, it's it's being explicit with your peers or your boss or whatever and saying, hey, you know, can we, can I just like shift my role around a little bit so I have to do less of that stuff? And when I was at Amazon, I just had 15 goals and I just said to my boss, like, you see these three, they're going to be green and they're going to be green in July. And I might get some of these towards green if you're lucky, but this is the stuff that I'm really going to excel at. And they were like, well, you need to turn them all green. I'm like, sure. I'm going to do these ones, um, you know, and that's probably why I'm not an employee anymore. But, um, but the point being is that if you can, and I, if you can sort of optimize for that, I enjoy it and I'm good at it quadrant. But a lot of people, I think, stay in the um, I'm good at it, but I don't enjoy it. You know, a lot of people grind their careers out in the wrong, in the top left quadrant. You know, it's like the the bit where they're going, oh, you know, like I'm really good at this. Everyone tells me I'm great at it, but after a while, I just fucking hate myself for going to work and and. You know, that it takes a lot of courage to go, oh, you know, I'm going to stop doing the thing that I'm really good at and try and find the, the part of that that I actually enjoy and then shift over into the, the other quadrant in the, in the do I like it and do I enjoy it axis. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a privilege to be able to do that. But I also think that, you know, given, given no um, internal um, desire to do it, you'll just you'll, you'll go in the, the thing you're good at and don't really like if you, you've given no other inputs. Which is where, you know, I always say the majority of the population end up, they do something because they get stuck to the grind and stuck to the job. And with that comes expenses and they feel like they're trapped in this career and in this job that that uh, is not necessarily for them. Mate, uh, obviously conscious, conscious of your time. Um, mate, before we work in 
industry where you're at the forefront of seeing new ideas and seeing new businesses and the things that are going to pop and the things that, you know, crash and burn. Um, are there any headwinds you're seeing at the moment in, in certain sectors or, or certain business businesses where, you know, you're seeing this thing sort of explode or, or there's a huge... Yeah, I mean, you know, headwinds at the moment is just the unknown that, that we see quite often is just um, is those, those macro um, uh, COVID-related ones and environment-related ones now. Um, you know, I've got a bunch of, I've got a few travel companies in my portfolio and a few that would love to get into the tractor portfolio. And it's like, we swear that when this thing goes away, you know, it's going to be an explosive time for travel. We're like, that's great. But when it goes away, you know, plus minus, you know, you're talking about picking a date in the future and plus minus 100% or plus minus a year off that date, right? I mean, you just don't know. So timing, like timing on everything is always a challenge, you know, being too early is the same as being wrong a lot of the time because, you know, dumb ideas that are too early come back as, you know, the killers later on. Um, so, that you know, the headwinds around around the sort of the macro environment, that said, um, you know, again, reducing sort of that, that surface area of that thing you're trying to solve to the point where you can start doing it. Um, headwinds aside, you know, if you reduce surface area, the headwinds shouldn't affect you too much because you've got a small surface area, right? So, like, if you can shrink it down, get something really tight and niche and then have, you know, one or two more customers join every week, it doesn't have to accelerate like crazy. It's just got to solve an actual real problem. What about tailwinds? Where's where's the tailwinds coming? Where you're seeing these things just launch into the future off yeah, Elon Musk's I mean, launch pad? Yeah, I mean the tailwinds at the moment. I think are um, there's a lot of tailwinds in in health related things, although it's still regular things. So you've got these sort of competing. You know, we need to get better at this, but you've got clear regulation environments. Um, I think. Uh, there's there's a lot of capital out there looking for a place to live in this day and age of zero interest rates. So, um, you know, the, the tailwinds for any founder um, will come when two things happen at once. They are able to find that customer that loves them and they're able to find a backer who, who really appreciates that. So they probably, they look like the customer, they understand the problem um, is, is really like you get those two things to align at once and then things sort of take off. Um, and I think, in, you know, my recommendation to anyone who's starting something is you spend a lot of time trying to explain what you do and why you do it to a bunch of people who have no idea. And, um, like, that's really energy consuming. So you should optimise for people that kind of live in the space you're, trying, you're solving the problem for so you don't have to start from first principles. So the tailwinds are kind of manu- manufactured. It's a combination of, you know, happy customers solving a real problem and then people who already get it, you know, when you start trying to fundraise. Um, you know, people like me who are a, a generic investor a lot of the time, you know, when you come to me with a problem that I have known nothing about, you know, the likelihood of me saying yes is quite low. Um, uh, at Tractor, we obviously have quite a broad mandate, so we do try and understand that. But, um, you know, that, that would be, you know, the tailwind of those two combination things, I think, is something you can manufacture your own. So find your passion, then find your niche inside of that passion and then find someone like you, huh? Who not understands bad, Not it. a bad ladder up, yep. <laughs> Matt, I thank you very much for your time, mate. A lot of gold in there. I got a lot out of it, so I don't care if anyone else did. Um, 
Mate, I really, really appreciate it. Go and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. See ya.